Public Intellectual is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. You can find my show and more original work at foreverdogpodcasts.com. And Public Intellectual now has a Patreon. If you've been enjoying these weekly episodes, you can consider donating at patreon.com slash publicintellectual. You give us money and we'll give you some stuff. That stuff, inevitably, includes a tote bag. But we're working on other ideas, and if you have a certain desire, let us know your desires, and we will we'll try to work them out. So again, patreon.com slash public intellectual. When the history of Bauhaus is written, there are two things commonly left out of it. One is that it had a lot of women involved in it. And secondly, that its roots are in mystical teachings. It is instead mentioned as a masculine, industrial, materialist movement. But this lines up with how we talk about modernism in general, as a secular and unenchanted artistic movement. We try to forget that so many of the artists and writers and political revolutionaries were magicians, mediums, spiritualists, and occultists. We live in a materialist age, and it makes us uncomfortable to think that so many of the people we revere were so heavily invested in other realms and dimensions. Or we try to explain it away by saying things like, well, a lot of people were dying in World War I, so it makes sense people would go crazy and think that they could communicate with the dead. Even though most of the enthusiastic embrace of the occult from the spiritualist religious revolution in the United States to the Theosophical Society to William James helping to initiate psychical research predated World War I by decades. Yes, you know I can barely get through two sentences without bringing up William James. So just as an aside, because every single biography of the great philosopher manages to completely overlook his interest in psychic phenomena, I'll mention that he requested of his brother Henry that, after he died, Henry visit mediums and try to make contact, just in case William was able to get a message through from the afterlife. It seems he was unable. I imagine he was too distracted by the great wonders the afterlife presented him. I recently attended a wonderful exhibition of mysticism and art at the IMA in Dublin, which our next guest, Parik E. Moore, a writer, curator, and art historian from Ireland based in Brussels, had a hand in. We discuss, among other things, the secret history of the occult and modernism and the role it played in art, writing, and revolutions. So when we're talking about the occult and it's the occult and mysticism and any sort of spirituality or, or sort of religious um, experience and its influence into art, it's strange how much of that conversation has been erased from the actual sort of history of an artistic movement. Um, I mean, reading about early Bauhaus days 
somehow the occult and mystical elements of the foundation of Bauhaus get completely erased from it. And you can even read whole things on Yeats that don't even mention the fact <laughs> um, that he was in the Golden Dawn, etc., etc. So I'm interested in the fact that this is still, I don't know if taboo is the right word, but um, certainly overlooked or secret history of the under underpinnings of art, these artistic movements. Absolutely. Um, I think a, a, a real change in this type of research and thinking uh, was in 1984, um, a curator and art historian called Morris Tuchman. He, um, he um, curated a show in LACMA, uh, which sort of w was probably the first show of the, of the late 20th century. It was called the Spiritual Art Abstract Painting. And, and the catalogue for me was a real touchstone throughout my sort of development, you know, when I was um, studying art history a decade ago. And he was the first person really to reassess the creation of all of these very abstract vocabularies that artists were using. And also an attempt to try and find out what the sources of a lot of artists who we now consider as kind of canonical modernists, where they had maybe, what doorway they'd, they'd gone through to find the, you know, the language that they were using. And I suppose there's a number of reasons for you talk about this kind of self-censorship or uh, um, occluding certain aspects. And in many cases, I suppose this was a sort of um, something a lot of the artists themselves were responsible for. Um, if you look at Yeats, for example, I mean, by the 1930s, he himself had kind of eschewed a lot of the sources in, that he had um, been using um, with the Golden Dawn, again with Yeats, and maybe we can talk about this in, in, in a few moments. Um, that's really, I suppose, also about the question of authorship in that it was in fact his wife who was channeling these spirit voices. Um, but on a less sort of personal and specific level, we, we, I guess the, 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 the main issue is really, I suppose, about a rationalization of art history and, and, and liter you know, literature as well. And, and the idea that something as irrational and um, inexplicable as the spirit um, cannot really fit very neatly into an academic tracking or scheduling of historical narrative. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so excluded. I know from a personal uh, perspective, when I was you know, being introduced to the art historical canon in my early 20s as a student in Dublin, um, I was never really introduced to, to, to a lot of the ideas, which through my own sort of um, determination, I, I discovered, you know, but, you know, in a lecture or whatever, you would never be told that someone like Albers uh, had been, you know, an advocate of, of Eastern systems of thought and meditation and breathing exercises, etc. So it doesn't really fit neatly into the very mechanistic and sterile viewpoint we have of modernity, which is a quite, a, I think it's, it's, it's often taught as a very secular process, increasingly, in fact, a very secular process. Um, 
So also to, 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 to go back to the Bauhaus reference, uh, yes, I mean, as we've talked about when I met you, the, the, um, the Bauhaus in its earliest phase was a very expressionistic and, and in fact a spiritual project which changed, I guess, in the early 20s, but in its, in its infancy was really embracing all of the, the, the theosophical and um, the different spectrums that that provided, both to body and mind. So I suppose it's about, it's, about, uh, it's, it's going on in every tradition. There's, there's, there's a sort of, um, it's not always censorship. I think often it's, it's really just uh, a necessary occlusion of inconvenient details that don't quite fit in with the black and white narrative that needs to be constructed. Particularly, I think also in the case of the Bauhaus, which you mentioned, there are questions around, I suppose, some of the, um, as we know, with, with, with the initial phases of the Third Reich and that very vokish culture, there's often a strange crossover with certain forms of occultism. So, perhaps there was a necessary uh, censorship from modernism itself that these, these, these elements didn't fit in with uh, the ultimate intentions of, of Bohemian culture. Yeah, so, uh, so there was this kind of, throughout the Western world, I guess, um, a kind of simultaneous spiritual flourishing. And I think maybe we should talk a little bit about the different um, modes of that. I mean, in America, it was very much sort of based around um, spiritualism, um, which began with the Fox sisters, but but really sort of like grew into an actual sort of, um, not philosophy, but, or, or theology, but certainly it had very original ideas about the afterlife and the meaning of existence and the soul and, and that sort of stuff that it was sort of taking out of Swedenborgism and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah. had a huge influence both politically and um, uh, artistically. But then in Europe, you had the sort of mystery cults, you had theosophy. Um, where do these kind of where do these begin? How do they influence each other? Um, yeah, I mean, I think and- it's fascinating that, in fact, the Fox sisters can be considered, in a way, the sort of unintentional um, beginning of the Theosophical Society, because, in fact, it was Blavatsky and Colonel Olcott met um, when they went to experience the phenomenon of the Fox sisters, which I always think is a really interesting um, convergence of different things. So so in a way, we we can see that these sort of radical spirits of the Fox sisters, whether or not we actually concur this was fraudulent or maybe just um, some sort of psychodrama going on, this domestic situation was the, the point at which Olcott and Blavatsky met. And this, of course, then gives birth to the Theosophical Society. Um, so it sort of grows from a spiritualist movement, but quite quickly in the development of theosophy, they, they begin to shed their connection to um, 
spiritualism. I think the attempt was, it was quite a self-conscious attempt to try and embrace a more Eastern mode of thinking that looks upon more of a lifestyle and, and a new age kind of cult of um, being in a way. And so I find that, I think it's quite an interesting key in, in a way to looking at, at, at the doorway into, into theosophy, which of course is also springing out of a time when Orientalism was very much in vogue. And, um, you know, it's, no, it, it, I don't, I don't, it's not a coincidence that in fact, ha- having been very popular in Europe, it was ultimately India that theosophy was embraced by and, and accepted in. But another thing that's important to remember is how both in Ireland and India, that theosophy actually provided a kind of a catalyst for political as well as spiritual change. And um, people like Annie Besant, who you know, became, sort of took the mantle of theosophy from Blavatsky, she was uh, really key in, in political change as well as spiritual enlightenment. It's something I think that's been lost again from the history of movements like theosophy is that um, in in their in in the sort of golden age of these movements, they did carry with them a an idea of very practical change, uh, as much as sort of you know conceptual and spiritual and sort of maybe immaterial elements. They were trying to find a synthesis of of change on every level, every plane of existence, um, which is something I. I Again, I feel we're, we're lacking in, in the in the in the contemporary era is this sort of attempt to find a synthesis of expression, but also you know that perhaps by changing the you know the material, you can also have, that will imp- have an implication on, on a spiritual plane, and vice versa. Because it comes with a great deal of responsibility, of course, the notion that if, if, you know, if karma is, which is, again, to go back to theosophy, you know, the first movement to propound notions of karma, and um, certainly they were championing ideas of, you know, um, that, that to, to, to destroy or to um, impact upon the life of, of not only another human, but a soul, you know, even an animal that this was going to affect you in the next life. So again, uh, pacifism, of course, but also anti-vivisectionism, vegetarianism, and probably one of the first, you know, movements to really a- attempt to, to find a, a, a more um, ontological or spiritual justification for something like pacifism. Um, that fascinates me because I think we've lost that to some degree in our, you know, hyper-material, techno-rational age, these ideas have definitely been shared along the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in the, in the political change element of, of sort of re- these religious reforms and revolutions. Um, I wrote a piece not too long ago about how so many of the first wave feminists were spiritual mediums and about how that was sort of necessary for them to even believe in the possibility of societal change and to believe that they could take positions of power. Um, the experience, I mean, some of it was the, uh, the change in their ideas of um, 
what God was, what love was, what the soul was. But some of it was just the fact that they got to be um, mediums and so take positions of power within the spiritualist movement. And so they got to speak, you know, in front of people and had this kind of just basic training of this is how you say words in front of a large audience without wanting to die inside, (laughs) you know, Um, that sort of practical um, application of religion was super helpful in setting up um, women's rights and sort of creating a public space for women. And so I find that fascinating um, how these, um, how it has influences that you wouldn't expect it to have. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the dynamic of the medium was always still somehow uh, very problematic and controlled by sort of a, a medical patriarchal uh, system, particularly the seance room to me is the sort of ultimate symbol of, of almost um, forensic investigation of, of, of the woman's body, you know, in, in a really invasive sort of way. And, and particularly these situations where the orifices are being ser- you know, searched for um, fraudulent ectoplasm and this sort of mm-hmm. thing. And then, but I think if you're talking about, you know, symbols or, or ideas of this, for me, you know, uh, as I said before, it would be this woman, Matilda Gage, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who, who wrote this book, uh, w- w- Woman, Church and State. Um, so she's not so much a medium, but what she is doing is drawing a bridge between um, her idea of, of witches or those who were communicating with um the spirit realm in maybe, you know, the early modern period, you know, the, the sort of 17th century and the time in which she was writing, which was the late 19th century. And she's probably the first person to, to sort of do that and, and also to identify the, the persecution of, um, of witches as being a manifestation of a, a patriarchal system that feared, um, feminine, you know, power over extremely patriarchal systems like medicine, for example. So I think she's, a, you know, the, the perfect, you know, example, really. And, and also I, I feel the arc of what she was doing was very much re... Um, it was a renaissance of, 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 of her thinking in the 1960s and the 70s. Um with people like Starhawk who wrote this book, Spiral Dance, who you're probably aware of, and that resurgence of sort of Dianic Wicca and, and uh, witchcraft being embraced in the US in particular. Well, initially in, in 1968, there's this movement called Witch, which you're probably aware of, which I think was founded initially in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um and they would have been looking at people like Gage, but also this this book by um, Starhawk. And though that grew out of Wicca, which is a essentially British phenomenon, when Wicca was sort of imported or spread to the US, um, it seemed to find sort of, it have this kind of double connection or a, a sort of um, really to, to be a, adopt in a, in a much more eclectic way. So you have people like Starhawk embracing it and Witch, of course. 
And so these individuals who are really part of second wave feminism would identify in with uh, these sort of the witch trials, for example, of of, of um, this, the 17th century, for example. Um, so I think that's a really important thread that that there is this um, a sort of a very um, postmodern way of using history again because you know, there is actually no line between what we would, you know, between Wicca or, or 20th century witchcraft and what was happening in Europe. Well, and to some degree in America, of course, um, centuries before, it's sort of a selective use of history um, to create, a, I mean, obviously a history of persecution, but you don't really have individuals who are part of the same line of, of, of using the same sort of craft or, or um, passing down traditions of practice to one another. It's more of a sense of, I suppose, a, a psychological bond. Yeah, and it also seems, you know, looking back, the use of the wife as the medium um, and then the wife um, being sort of marginalized or sidelined from the story of how the work was created. And I'm, I'm thinking about Yeats. Well, that was true of Crowley too, right? Um, that it was primarily yes, his, yeah. Yeah, they both, they both, I mean, I think probably, I don't know how much, I, I, I don't know how much the, the, the two, Yeats and Crowley were obviously very aware of each other, both in the Golden Dawn. It's it's amusing to listen to some of Yeats's sort of, um, contemporary reports of, of, you know, his position on, 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 on Crowley and vice versa. You know, they really despised each other. They were sort of, look, you know, they were really chasing after the same position. And then of course, um, Yates was probably quite prudish on some level. Um, there's a massive split in the golden dawn and a split that sort of effectively ends it in a way. Um, but both of them, as you point out, you know, were in situations where they're, um, their wives became conduits for these strands of information, which effectively were, you know, key in the production of major texts. While in Yeats's case, they were kind of, are still recognized as being important in a literary sense. In the case of Crowley, these are the books which form the basis of Thelema, you know, this religion. So, they both have, you know, equally important on different levels. Um, but again, you, you see it even in, 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 in the case of artists. I mean, an artist you will, you would have seen recently, um, in exhibitions with Hilma af Klint, who people are familiar now, I suppose, as being a, a sort of, um, painting when she was in the late 19th century, early 20th century, really a sort of pioneer of, of, of abstraction. And, you know, one of the first people to really be painting uh, in a way which we now consider very familiar, you know, geometric abstraction is, is, is a vocabulary we all relate to now. But in the 1890s and 1910s, of course, it wasn't. And she would claim that these paintings um, were initially, when she first started painting, she was part of a group called the Five, who met in Stockholm, every, you know, on a weekly basis, and would have uh, five women who would who would have these um, group 
um, seances and would channel in different ways. And, and she initially said that when she was painting that she was purely a conduit, purely a vessel, and that, that her guides were really the source of these abstract images. But what's interesting about, and she had a huge, um, so prolific, I mean, over a hundred, you know, more hundreds of paintings, but it was her, it was actually Hilma Afklint herself who said that really people should not see these on, on, you know, for decades because they wouldn't be ready. So again, you, in a way, in, in the case of Hilma Afklint, you have almost not a sense of censorship, but sort of, um, a, an unwillingness to, to uh, be very outspoken about this. It's very different in the case of Yeats and Crowley. I mean, in the case of Crowley, he, he would never have denied that this channeling process was key. But as we said in the beginning of the conversation with Yeats, I imagine as his work became more and more academicized and introduced into sort of a canon, the notion of the spirit or the hidden or the esoteric playing a, a major role in his work would have become less and less palatable, but also um, for him, perhaps the notion of the ego being it being himself, who was the author of all this, became more and more and more important. It's very telling in a way, I suppose. It's you can gauge it to the degree at which each of these people were became successful in their lifetimes. You know, certainly in Crowley's instance, his success depended upon his connection with his occultic wisdom. Yeats, he became a literary czar in a way. And these ideas of, of him being guided by the spirit or, or the hidden would have been, you know, less in step with the circles he was moving in by, you know, by, by the mid 20th, well, but at least by the interwar period. Because I suppose as well, you know, this also, it, it stopped being so much in vogue as, as we were talking about with the Bauhaus earlier. Um, though its origins were, had a lot of these elements, you know, esoterics, um, anthroposophy, the influence of Rudolf Steiner, etc. It was very much in vogue at a certain point. But by the, you know, even by World War I, a lot of this was going out of fashion for, for a whole spectrum of reasons. It's always difficult, I suppose, to measure a kind of historical um, pattern via an individual artist or cultural producer because they react and respond to it in different ways. I mean, even if we look at someone, for example, like Jung or Gurdjieff, their impact has never really ceased. Um, but equally, we can look at someone like Jung and realize that his history and even some of his ideas have been very carefully censored and written out of, you know, popular, the popular imagination. Um, but they all really, I think, are, they, they are originate from very similar roots. Um, but it depends upon how the, the sort of the legacy or the estate or the papers are managed and who's in control of that, you know, it's always very particular to the individual. Yeah, I mean, there are so many horror stories of um, whoever gets hold of the estate, um, just completely mangling that person's legacy or 
their work or, um, uh, I mean, there's so many horror stories as far as like Stephen Joyce, um, with the James Joyce estate and, um, Dorothy Parker gave her estate to, um, is probably another good example, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, if, especially if you're talking about something that that goes out of fashion, like um, yeah, dabbling I mean, I in black also, magic, absolutely. But we have to also remember it's not just it's not just about the individual. It's about also the sort of socio political climate in which it's kind of being embraced. I mean, in Ireland, for example, if we're going to talk about Yeats or someone who's slightly more obscure, like say George Russell, who was Yeats's contemporary friend and um, fellow magician in a way. While Yeats sort of was from an, you know, an Anglo-Irish situation, was able to leave quite frequently and was really, you know, embraced equally in the UK. Um, Russell, who was um, the sort of leading theosophist, his work was, um, I mean, he, he fled Ireland in, in, and died in the UK in 1937. But because of the climate which arose in Ireland after independence, which became, a, you know, really a kind of... Um, extremist Catholic um, and quite totalitarian in the way culture was being used to, to sort of initiate the notion of a new cultural tradition. Uh, esotericism and occultism were really cleansed from the narrative of Irish history, even though between, let's say, 1890 and 1920, it had been a major source and catalyst for not only cultural production, but actually unifying people from, a, you know, very different uh, aspects of society. So um, it also depends upon how the culture in which, you, apart from the individual who owns the, the, the estate or the legacy, the way in which that sort of material is used or, um, or, uh, or even instrumentalized by the society that, that holds on to it or uses it to control, you know, popular culture. Do you think that so many of the spiritual leaders turned out to be, I mean, fraud is not quite the right, the right word, but certainly there was a tendency toward exaggeration and um, false history of pretending that certain texts or documents came directly from the Egyptian uh, uh, era and, and so on and so forth. And Blavatsky sort of um, coming up with these stories about where of the source of her material too. Um, do you think that also had a, an impact as far as um, everybody being a little bit embarrassed <laughs> um, after a certain point? I mean, I think this um, model of the the guru or the, 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 the medium being um, utilized by the spirit or the ascended masters to provide the sort of the method or the system, you know, that, that, that has actually never really gone away. I mean, it's still around us to, to a degree. Um, but it certainly contributed to these people's downfall. I mean, in the, in the case of Blavatsky, she was, it's, it's really hard to deny that she was engaged in fraudulent activity. Um, this whole idea, even the way in which she wrote Isis Unveiled, um, it, it, you know, you can really see that, that, that the large um, sections of it, 
or clearly lifted from pre-existing texts. So without even the, the, the suggestion that she's a, um, and uh, you know, and the same with the secret doctrine, that there is big chunks of these texts which are clearly plagiarized. Um, and similarly with, with the, the idea of letters, I mean, I think in the case of Blavatsky, it gets really uh, uncomfortable when, when you can, you know, within the, when various societies were invited in to investigate um, the genesis of these letters that kept falling out of the ether and uh, which would be commanding people to be doing very specific things. Uh, obviously here we have a situation where if somebody is suddenly kind of, um, pr it's proven that, that, that they're engaging in activity, which is devaluing their more philosophical or ontological ideas. But I think there is a there, there has to be sort of a, a question. I mean, there are huge elements of of these people's legacy that are also extremely significant and valuable. And um, the same with Crowley. You know, a lot of people who would you know be interested in Thelema. Um, they would accept that there's a certain point in his career where perhaps more physical or material or appetites began to take over. And so he was no longer the pure vessel he had been. Um, I suppose like any system or philosophy, it has to be utilized in a, in a way that makes sense for the individual. And so... The idea, I suppose, is that it's not about the um, individual in question or their, you know, specific biography. It's about the message. I mean, you could also abstract this or apply it to an artist whose political affiliations are deeply questionable, but they produce some work of great note, importance, and perhaps even beauty it becomes difficult to see that when you're aware of what they were capable of, you know, either personally or politically. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a difficult one really to, uh, to divide the personal life and the potentially fraudulent activities from the potential of what they produced and the doctrines that are still being embraced by people today and hold a certain amount of value um, I think we have to sort of, ex you know, judge this on a personal level. Right. I'm always, I'm always interested in how eager we are to, um, debunk or, I mean, certainly going back to, um, even during the time, people trying to scientifically prove that the that seances were frauds and 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 so on. But um, spiritualism had such a huge influence on American history, and yet it's a very marginalized part of of American history. It, it, it's only written about if you're if you're writing about it very specifically about spiritualism. And so it's not sort of incorporated into, um, say the, the larger religious story of, of America or, or feminism or so on. And that seems to be because, um, 
you know, the Fox sisters at various times said, yeah, we were faking or, and then they would take back the, um, the admission that they were faking and said that they were under pressure and they were sick of being asked about it and, and so on. Um, but it does like, there's something in our very sort of secular age that um, is uncomfortable with ambiguity and would like to just sort of disprove something so that we don't have to think about it ever again. Yeah, I mean, the exact same um, situation occurred in um, in England in 1977 with this really famous Enfield poltergeist case where a number of sisters also who were, I think, 11 and 13 or 14 became the focus of really, really heavy poltergeist activity and haunting. And the Society of Cycle Research moved in and, the you know, it was scientifically, you know, almost proven that there was... Um, anomalous phenomenon occurring, but simultaneously there was phenomena they were clearly creating themselves. And um, perhaps there is this initial source of, of, you know, inexplicable phenomenon. And then as a human being, you begin, uh, you know, to want to, to, to use your audience and to play games, particularly with younger, you know, I think, I don't know what age the Fox sisters were, but I'm pretty sure they weren't, um, do you have any ideas what ages they were? Maybe in the early twenties, at, at 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 the very latest, in very 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 eldest, perhaps. Yeah, twenties, um, and then down to like I think uh, fourteen. Yeah, so you have this situation, of course. I mean, you you know, you know, it's 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 um, it's it's kind of an inevitable in a way that you would have this dynamic. Um, and I don't think it's always about the, the wanting to dispel. I mean, I think there is a lot of belief, um, perhaps, you know, initially. But I mean, it also reminds me to some degree of, of, of things like um, Salem, uh, you know, you know, and and the witch trials there. I mean, perhaps there's some innate need to deny particularly when it gets politicized the 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 possibility that that there are unseen forces at work um but i think that the idea of it being uh dismissed more and more is really that's to do with the society in which we're living um which is on one hand become so materialistic but yet paradoxically is still invested so heavily in unseen forces i mean more so than ever before in terms of this extreme form of technology that we're all working with now i mean it has all parallels with magic really if you think about it um but i think another quite you know another issue really about its disappearance is it's less about it being disappeared or obscured or disposed of is the fact that in, in a way a lot of these ideas have perhaps become so commonplace and saturated and every day that we're actually dealing with them all the time we're just not using the same vocabulary or po- we don't view them with the same possibility as they may have been viewed with in in the early uh 20th or, the, or late 19th century i mean to go back to the society of psychical research if you look at some of the individuals who were you know champions of this they're all, you know, people of science, you know, Oliver Lodge, William Crookes, both of whom in the first instance, you know, he was uh, dealing with radio technology in the second, 
electrical and, and you know, electrical light. I mean, even someone like Tesla, for example, who has been really, I guess, become a sort of almost a, a mascot of, of this kind of confluence between, you know, magic and science in a way. But um, they're all really engaged with the possibilities, of, you know, the spiritual possibilities of these sciences, as in fact were the Theosophical Society. I mean, that was one of the reasons it was so popular. It was, it was proposing this idea that you could still be a rational individual, but hold, uh, you know, you could effectively invest in a sort of spiritual science in a way. And that's something that's becoming less and less um, possible for us all, because, you know, science is now something that's quite um, elitist, and certainly it's very much controlled by market forces. And it's certainly nothing to do with ideas of belief or faith. So this split is, is one of the reasons perhaps why there's been, um, it, it's really, I think, a, a split that exists throughout all forms of contemporary Western society. And it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, there is such alienation from, you know, everyday life. We, we, we have effectively, I suppose, alienated ourselves from parts of our existence, uh, which we have some arcane connection with, but have been very um, slowly, but, but very carefully sort of removed from. And do you see any sort of parallel between the rise of the interest in witchcraft today and the sort of beginning phases um, in the mid 19th century? I mean, I think there's a whole spectrum of reasons for this resurgence of interest in witchcraft. Uh, I do think it did, you know, the, the, the initial maybe um, a portent of this was, as I mentioned, in 68 with the whole witch, um, the, the witch movement, who I think, you know, really went out of, they seem to have sort of been forgotten about until maybe, I don't know, 2014, maybe 2015, I, I don't know what year, and then um, I think there was a sort of a resurgence, you know, it, and, and this was happening on, I think, just simultaneously, you know. And um, I suppose there's an identification with the witch as a figure. Um, I mean, I think there has been individuals always writing about the witch as this, uh, you know, this paragon of wisdom um, or... or uh, ancient uh, yeah ancient wisdom and, and also a figure who has been a victim of persecution so you know i think people have identified with this um, and even the symbolism and the iconography um but i would connect it to i guess uh, you know it, it's perhaps also something to do with with, with living in an extremely secular society that eschews um, organized religion in, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously there's, there's fanaticism, but I think for most people, um, they want to find some sort of system. I mean, I, I think Wicca and witchcraft, they, of all, of all new modern religions, they really allow for a huge amount of eclecticism. And they also are more about kind of self-actualizing um, in psychological terms, 
than they are about tapping into a system of organized thought that forces an individual to subjugate themselves to sort of a, a system of deities. Um, obviously, Wicca is also, ultimately, it's a nature religion. And living in, in, in the age in which we do, um, I think ideas of looking to nature and back to the self, um, it's, it's, it's a sort of an, an inevitable pattern. Um, and I think it's happening on, on simultaneously on, on numerous levels, um, not necessarily a planned thing. I mean, I know the whole witch thing, which I was mentioning, mentioning earlier uh, which you know started in the 60s um i think that's which is international terrorist conspiracy from hell is what they were why they were using it in 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 uh, the 60s i think they first were it's something like 68 or 69 for some reason i always sort of connected to the sort of scum manifesto because it's equally as sort of um aggressive in its kind of language and also they were carrying out a lot of i mean i think it's it's maybe one of the first confluences as well with performance art because they were doing quite high profile actions in places that they saw as representing sort of patriarchal capitalism so you know they were targeting particular buildings or meetings um i mean that seems to have been really not very prominent until the last three, four years. And then this is sort of similar. It just happened again. Um, I mean, you could ascribe it to just a, a, um, a resurgence of this. It's an archetype, isn't it? I mean, the witch is an archetype that perhaps feels more relevant than ever in different, whatever context. You, I mean, certainly in Ireland, the witch has become a focus in the last three or four years. In, in this year's Venice uh, Biennial, um, the artist who represented Ireland, her name is Jessie Jones, in, in her multimedia installation, The Witch was the sort of focus of the, uh, the whole piece. And in fact, you know, as a member of the audience, you were being, um, you know, told by this witch figure to never trust the law of man. And of course, in the context of Ireland, this ties into the current legislation, which still criminalizes women for having abortions. Um, so I guess in this case, Jones, the artist, she, she, she is drawing a line between um, reproductive rights in Ireland and this notion of the witch as a midwife or, or wise woman, you know. So another reason why it's been suggested in, in <laughs> in the 17th century, why these women, these, these midwives were, um, you know, being eliminated again, because they, they were not, um, they, they had, a, they were offering an alternative, I suppose, over bodily control. This is really written about by this, uh, Italian writer, Silvia, Silvia Federici. This is her sort mm -hmm. of main point of research that the witch trials were really also, you know, a lot to do with sort of medical control over women. So that's just one small example, but I mean, I think there's many reasons why, and, and perhaps also it's, it's a sense of complete, um, despair. I mean, if um, certain forms of organized politics, you know, and, and scientific investigations cease to work, surely the logical conclusion is to look to the invisible 
and to look um, to the way of the witch and to look back into the shadows for the solutions that we all need, both, you know, as individuals, but also as communities. Because certainly, you know, institutionalized religion isn't, isn't has, has, has stopped being a kind of a viable option for most people. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why these archetypes are entering back into not only the, the imagination, but actually becoming, you know, vehicles for um, dissent. I think that's a lovely place to stop. Um, I think that's a good idea to, to kind of close with. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.